So as we continue in our busy sermon series, where we're taking a look at being too busy for the things that are important to us, um, we wear busyness as a badge of honor. We compare notes, who's busiest, who has the most, as though we're more important because people want to fill our time. I was reviewing some of my devotional notes, and do you know the very first time in Scripture that people were too busy for God? It's in the book of Exodus, when the Hebrew people are enslaved in Egypt. And God has sent Moses to say, get my people out of there, go to Pharaoh, and Moses goes and says, hey, we, we want to go away to worship our God. We'd like to go three days journey into the desert and worship, and we'll come back. That wasn't true. But he says, we'll, we'll come back. And Pharaoh goes, if they've got time to be thinking about worshiping God, we haven't given them enough to do. Double what they have to do. Make them work harder. Being too busy for the things that are important has never been a sign of importance It's always been a sign of enslavement, of being under the oppression of the wrong things. Remember that God himself created for six days, and on the seventh day it says, he rested. And when we are too busy, we don't have time to nurture important relationships. We don't have time to give our physical bodies and our minds the rest it needs. We don't have time to notice where God might be calling us to show compassion or love in the world because we are too busy. And I remind you that we could be too busy doing good things. The story of the Good Samaritan that Jesus tells, a priest and a Levite are busy They're on their way to do the good things that God has called them to do, but they don't have time to do the very good thing of taking care of someone in need. We can be too busy. And so for today, we're looking at the 23rd Psalm, not the 32nd Psalm. As we think about these beautiful words that conjure up images of peace and margin and the opposite of busy. I'm reading from the contemporary English Bible that we use in worship. If you're like me, I'll never hear this in any version other than the King James. This and John 3.16 and the Lord's Prayer are permanently etched into my brain in King James. But sometimes hearing it in a different version makes a phrase or a verse come alive in a new way. So I invite you to hear the voice of God speaking to us in these words of Scripture. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He lets me rest in grassy meadows. He leads me to restful waters. He keeps me alive. He guides me in proper paths for the sake of his good name. Even when I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no danger because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they protect me. You set a table for me right in front of my enemies. You bathe my head in oil. My cup is so full it spills over. Yes, goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life. And I will live in the Lord's house for as long as I live. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. 
I shared with a couple of you before um, worship started this morning. This was another one of the weeks that I was in Kansas um, working on my doctoral uh, doctorate of Ministry degree at St. Paul School of Theology. So I flew out on Tuesday to the very first day of operation in a brand new airport in Kansas City. And I flew back in yesterday afternoon. And the class that was meeting this time is called Leading Across Difference. It was a very interesting class. We've been studying polarization in our culture and in our world. It used to be that you had about 3 to 5% of the population that we called the fringes on each end. And really the world was a great big bell curve because most of us were in the middle. We had some differences, but we had much more in common than we did different. But over the last 10 years or so, those who are in the middle have been shrinking and those moving to the edges have been growing until now we only have about a third of the population that is in the middle and can see what we have in common. We are so entrenched in our camps at the end and how do we lead? In particular, how do we lead in the church across those differences? And About middle of the week, middle of our time together, I began to realize how our conversations in class were bleeding into what was already the sermon for this week that has been in this series since we picked it, and we picked it before Advent, before Christmas, to begin working on it. And I just had to stop and say, God, you are so good that you pull all the strands together and give them meaning. Um, We have differences. And this teacher brought in some people to talk about how they have led through differences. One of those people, I'm sure you're not surprised, is Adam Hamilton. St. Paul School of Theology is located on the campus of Church of the Resurrection that Adam Hamilton pastors. It is the largest United Methodist Church in the United States. And it is a very diverse church, socioeconomically, politically, and racial, along racial and ethnic lines as well. And yet, they find a way to come together. And so he shared how he has done that, how he has worked on that with the people that God has entrusted to him. We also mentioned a book that I'm going to have to go find now. It hasn't been one of the class books, but four of our five speakers all referenced it, and it's called The Big Sort. I think his name is Bill Yeah, Bill Bishop, why the clustering of like-minded America is tearing us apart. We sort ourselves into homogenous groups. We surround ourselves with people who are like us. We do that. It happens naturally. We share a hobby. We share a life stage. Our kids are at the same age. They live in our neighborhood. We find lots to talk about because we agree with each other on an awful lot. And we sort ourselves into groups of people who are pretty much the same. We tend to live around people who are about where we are socioeconomically. Think about it. The people who live in public housing tend to be in one socioeconomic group. And the people who live in gated communities tend to be in a very different socioeconomic group. And those of us who fall somewhere in between tend to live around those who fall where we are across that spectrum. We get our news from the people who tell it from our particular perspective. So it doesn't rattle us and we feel like we can trust what we hear them saying. 
And then there's this thing that happens with social media that you've heard me talk about before, where the algorithm that feeds, particularly Instagram and Facebook, gives you more of what you already like. So you click on this link, you watch this video, you read this article, and it goes, aha, I know this person, I'll give them more of that. I have a tablet called a Remarkable Tablet that um, Kyle Bryan pushed me over the edge on buying because I used to have all these notebooks and I was making all these notes in them and I could never find the right notebook and he went, you need a Remarkable Tablet to write on so you always, you just have to find the one notebook. And so it's kind of a cross between an iPad. It feels like you're writing on paper. I love it. But I took it with me because you know what? It's, it's compact to take on a plane when you're trying to take everything in one bag. And there were other students in there who were interested in it. And during one of the breaks, they were looking at it and playing with it and pricing it. And when we went back, three other people in the class whose laptops had been opened during the break now have ads for the Remarkable tablet on their computer because they were listening. They want to give you more of what you like. But what can happen is we create an echo chamber where we don't interact with anybody who's very different from us. And then it becomes easy to say, well, everybody thinks like I do. And when you bump into the person who don't, well, gosh, they're just crazy. What kind of crazy outlier are they to, to disagree? Like everybody else feels this way. And you know what? We, we do it in churches too. The very first way that we separate ourselves into groups is, is theologically. Denominations are a way of sorting ourselves into homogenous groups. We then tend to do it along socioeconomic lines, along racial and ethnic lines. The Sunday morning hour of worship is still the most segregated hour of the week in the United States. We tend to separate ourselves from those who are different. And yet, how do people do it? How do they overcome that natural tendency to gravitate toward what makes us most comfortable and doesn't ever ruffle our feathers. And so Adam came in and spent several hours with us as he talked about it. And he shared a little bit of a video clip where he got two women to sit down together. And this was prior to the 2016 election, so they were very different politically. And you can't tell when they first start who lands in which camp and then you are surprised because it's not who you thought. It's the opposite of who you thought landed where. But at one point early in the conversation, one of the women says, Oh God, I don't even know what I was thinking when I agreed to do this. But if I walk out now, it'll look bad, won't it? It was hard. And so he shows us little snippets of what was a two-hour or so conversation of people who are very, very different. And as it progresses, they begin to relax a little bit. They began to smile. They began to laugh a little. And he shared with us that even now, all those years since that, those ladies have become friends. They still have coffee together. They have co-chaired some initiatives there at CORE, or Church of the Resurrection, um, in there because they sat down together. And Adam shared that there is power in spending time, in listening in getting to know someone. And he very often encourages that that be done over a meal. I love watching our Wednesday night meals, particularly when I catch a table that is very non-homogenous, 
where there's different groups of people, where there's a young person and an older person, um, and maybe that maybe there's a high chair at that table too. People who don't ordinarily, but they're sharing this meal together. Adam says nothing like food to get us talking. Although we think about not talking with our mouths full, there is something we feel comforted with the food. We have something to do with our hands and we begin to open up and talk. So the verse that they're lifting out for us this week in this sermon is the verse that says, you prepare a table before me right in the presence of my enemies. Not only do we need to share meals and have conversations with those who are like us, but it is an opportunity to share meals and stories and listen to people who are different from us. And what we might discover is that they may be different than us, but they're not crazy. They're not kooks out there on the fringes. They are thoughtful, reasonable people whose life experiences have led them to the conclusions they hold in the same way that our life experiences have led us to the conclusions that we hold and we might just find we have some things in common. And I've said before, if you look for commonality, you will always find some. If the, even if the only commonality you can find is that you are looking at another human being also made in the image of God. Another person for whom Jesus Christ came and taught and died and was resurrected. Another person whom the Holy Spirit is drawing into greater and deeper relationship with the ever-living and ever-loving God. We can learn much from sitting down at a table and sharing a meal. We need to remember that Jesus had diversity among his disciples. Among the twelve that represented his inner circle, he had a zealot and a tax collector. Those were the opposite end of the spectrum in his day. The zealot was so opposed to Roman oppression that they supported and advocated violent overthrow. We should raise an army and attack them and stand up and take back our land. Those were the zealots. And then he had a tax collector. The tax collector everybody else called a sellout. He's colluding with the Romans. He works for them, works with them. He's getting rich off of playing their game and helping to oppress us. And yet, right among the twelve were those ends of the spectrum. I believe that when we insist on diversity among ourselves, when we refuse to get pigeonholed, when we refuse to let the outside society place their overlay onto us of who we must be and how we must sort ourselves, I believe we look more like the kingdom of God than when we group ourselves into people who are only just like us. Because I believe when I get to heaven, there are going to be people who look very much like me and people who look very different than me. People who held positions on some issues very much like I do and positions that are very different than mine. 
People who think in very similar ways and people who think in very different ways. But what we will have in common will be a love of God and an attempt to follow Jesus Christ with our whole being. So I believe it is much messier. It is much easier to go to church with people who all feel like you do. You don't hear anything in your Sunday school class. You don't hear anything in a sermon. You don't read anything in a newsletter that disturbs you or unsettles you at all. It's a very comfortable place to be. When we start being different and having different opinions, it gets messy. Very messy. And maybe in the middle of the mess is where the Holy One of Israel meets us. Maybe it is in the mess that we are open to the voice of God leading us. Now, we also get told, don't, don't, don't do that. Don't, don't do that. Don't start listening to people who are different. They're very persuasive. They will suck you in. They will corrupt your thinking. That is dangerous stuff. Don't, don't start doing that. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think that is the witness of Scripture. I don't think it is the example of Jesus. If we look right here in verse 3, it says, He guides me in proper paths. God guides us in the way we are to go. And if God is guiding me, and the last verse says that goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will live in the Lord's house, listening to the story and having compassion for those who are different is not going to lead me into error. It's going to lead me into the heart of God. I can hear someone else's story. I can have compassion for it. I can understand how they got to where they are without ever joining them in that place. But I can have a better understanding of where they're coming from. Verse 4 says that no matter how dark that valley is, even when I walk through the very darkest of valleys, I don't have to fear any danger because God is with me. He talks about God's rod and God's staff, and those were two things that the shepherd took with them. The shepherd's hook helped pull back a sheep who's just wandering off. They're not real bright, y'all, and they wander away, and they keep them on track. The rod, sometimes you had to whack a sheep on the back of the foot just a little bit because they are getting ornery, and we keep them safe, and we correct them. You know what that reminds me of? I am not a good bowler. I don't bowl well at all. But I love going to a children's bowling birthday party because they put the bumpers up on the lanes. They put those little things up. I am guaranteed to hit some pins with my bowling ball when the bumpers are up. It is the only time I'm guaranteed to hit anything. Um, but to me, when God's Holy Spirit leads me to sit down at a table with those who are different, to see a different path... I can trust that God's already put the bumpers up on this lane. That God's going to hold me in the center if I am listening to His Spirit. And that compassion and love and a true listening 
a companionship of looking for what we share in common instead of just focusing on the differences can be mine and I am not in danger because God's got me. God prepares a table for us. It tells me that God's already done all the work. Jesus has already done all that needs to be done to bring us together, to make us one in Christ, to make us one in ministry to all the world. All we have to do is sit down at the table and enjoy what God has prepared for us. May we have the courage to be unbusy enough to sit down with those who are different. Thanks be to God. Amen. We're going to take a a moment in our um, timeout prayer chair. Um, If this is your first week with us, um, this is, um, we are talking about sitting, uh, giving ourselves a timeout, sending ourselves to a time with God every day when we can consider they're all going to the handbells, y'all. They're going to play during the offertory. They're not walking out. Hopefully this is not an example that the pastors just said something that made them all mad and they're out. But that was what it looked like and some of y'all's faces told me that's what it looked like too. (laughs) No, if you raise children or you've watched others raise children, you've heard of a timeout. And sometimes we need a break. We need a timeout. Sometimes our emotions are spiraling and we need a chance to take a deep breath. Sometimes we need to take ourselves out of a situation to be able to see how we should respond, how we can do better, how we can be more Christ-like in our response. And so in this series, we're giving ourselves a timeout in a prayer chair. And I've invited you to find a place in your home to just sit with God each day I've shared with you a picture of mine, and a couple of you have shared your pictures of your prayer chairs. There's a slide they're going to put up um, that shows others as you find a place to make room for God. And if you have one, send me a picture this week. It's a time for letting go of the things that we don't need to be holding that are weighing us down. We sometimes call that confession, assurance, and petition just three big words for reconnecting with God. In our confession, we let go of regret. We unburden our hearts for the past we cannot change. We remember the promise and the assurance that God will never leave us or abandon us no matter what. And even when sometimes we are the one who has wandered away and become distant. And in our petitions, we let go of the things we cannot change. The things in this world that we do not have control over. We give it to the loving God who holds us close and rocks us gently. So let's just start a time of prayer. With just a moment of silence. You don't have to try to find words to fill this time. But it's okay if you also can't get your thoughts to quiet down. Just find a stillness. 
God doesn't expect anything more of you than to be in His presence right now. There's nowhere else you need to go. Nowhere else you need to be. Where you are is enough. Oh God, for the times that we have put the to-do list before reaching out to others, forgive us. For the times when we isolated ourselves to just push through it, forgive us. Help us to find the place of balance. Help us to be mindful of our need and of the needs of others to be in relationship. Help us stop and find that relationship in You as You invite us to beautiful and serene moments of life. And in this moment, we hear Your promise that there is a place for You and there is enough to go around. You do not ask us to work to earn a place at your table. We are your children. And that just comes with a never-ending invitation, regardless. We bring our petitions to you this day as we lift to you those we have named and those we carry on our heart. As we take a moment of silence, And then we pray together as you taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And now-